And now in the Echo Chamber, a bonus episode featuring more on San Francisco psychedelic music scene from my interview with music critic Joel Selvin. The oldest juveniles in the state of California, the Grateful Dead. In San Francisco in 1965, 66, 67, there was such an explosion of music, great rock bands, it was just impossible not to be swept up in it. As a copy boy at the Chronicle, I could get my name on the guest list at the Fillmore. I would think I was out like six nights a week watching bands. I'm Joel Selvin, born and raised in Berkeley, California. At the age of 17, after having dropped out of high school, I went to work as a copy boy at the San Francisco Chronicle. And I subsequently took a job there as the pop music critic, which I kept for 36 years. San Francisco was the center of the rock music universe. A truly amazing parade of musical talent, not only local people, but from all around the world. Acid test is everywhere in this spaceship. Everywhere you are, you're all acid-testing. Well, the first thing was LSD. In 1964, Augustus Stanley Owsley III became the first private party to synthesize the formula for LSD, which had been produced since the late 40s by a Swiss pharmaceutical company. Owsley set up business in Berkeley down on Virginia Street, Bayer Research Laboratories, and produced, we don't know, could be the first two million units of LSD. Obviously, from that epicenter of Berkeley, this whole psychedelic movement just sort of spread out. At the Fillmore in December of 65, the Fillmore was in a black neighborhood and run R&B shows there for years. The acid test came in, Ken Kesey and all those guys had the same staff, right? So the old door cards this old black guy named John Walker. And John Walker's sitting there and he's watching all this craziness go on can't imagine what he's thinking but the police come in san francisco police they come in and they want to see what's going on here and they think it's pretty weird too and they go to walker and they go what the hell's going on he says don't worry they's in love nobody was pushy nobody was obnoxious everybody felt like being in this together was so special that we were automatically bonded and we were all friends immediately just because we were cool enough to be there everybody else that wasn't there they were missing it by 1966, when it was appearing on the cover of Life magazine and this mind-altering chemical, publicity had reached a point where everybody knew about it and those people who were inclined were gravitating toward using it. And this was the center of that. LSD had a tremendous effect on people who took it. In the San Francisco Bay Area, they began to form a kind of community around people who took LSD. And one of the first things they did was throw dances with bands. And these bands who also took LSD were not really like playing old-time rock and roll in the way it had been. It just didn't make any sense. Instead of like two, three-minute little songs, first chorus, first chorus, first chorus, bridge, first chorus, first, you're out, you know, they started playing instruments and jamming. The audience danced, and everybody was on LSD. Avalon and the Fillmore in 1966 were pretty much LSD speakeasies. This was like the ground zero for this explosion. And it wasn't just music. I mean, you can see its effect in organic farming, interest in yoga, the personal computer movement. All those guys were acid heads. Music's just one of the things that came out of that. It was a real prominent, it became the forefront of all that countercultural movement. 
First thing that happens to the LSD community, they want to have these public gatherings where they can engage in activity while having the LSD experience. The first of those were kind of informal affairs that were hosted by Ken Kesey, the author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which is a bestseller. I was uh, given the opportunity to go to the Stanford Hospital and uh, take part in the LSD experiment. He'd been a volunteer at the Stanford Veterans Hospital where the CIA ran LSD experiments, and that's where he was introduced to it. His idea was to hold this happening. And it was a multimedia event that involved projections, films, noise, and a band. The band was this sort of local electric bluegrass band called the Warlocks. They were the house band. They would go to a house in San Jose, hand out flyers, and I don't know how many people, you know, 50 to 100, not a big crowd. They had a bunch of these around. Of course, the Warlocks would become the Grateful Dead. At the Muir Beach acid test, they met Owsley. So then they had a steady supply of LSD. Now, the Trips Festival was kind of an outgrowth of the acid tests. Acid tests had taken place all through the fall and winter of 65. And in early 66, one of Kesey's associates, a fellow named Stuart Brand, who would go on to start the whole Earth catalog, he decided they should do a big three-day affair. And they rented out the Longshoreman's Hall, which had been the site of a couple previous acid rock dance by the family dog. Really, the very first one in October of 65 with the charlatans and the Airplane of Great Society. And oddly enough, they hired to produce the Trips Festival the square guy who had been the manager of the San Francisco meme troupe. And they'd been arrested for obscenity charges for doing a 15th century Italian play in the park. This is how it was in San Francisco in 65. And so as part of a defense fund, they held some benefits. And the guy discovered producing concerts and how easy it was and how much money you could make. And that would be Bill Graham. And Bill never took LSD. But they got him to produce this Trips Festival, and Jerry Garcia forever remembers the first time he met Bill Graham, because the Grateful Dead had taken too much acid, and they weren't going to be able to play. They were all way too high. And in fact, Garcia's guitar had been stepped on, and the neck had been broken off of the body. They were all getting ready to go home, give up, and get their gear and, and not play. And Garcia goes up on stage, and he sees this guy with a clipboard under his arm, frantically trying to put the guitar together. In his state, high on LSD, Jerry's just filled with this like sense of warmth and kindness of this man doing this futile, impossible task and bending so hard to it. He just loved the guy right away, and that was Bill Graham. There's all kinds of great stories from that night. I mean, Kesey was a fugitive from the law at that point. He'd been arrested a couple times on marijuana charges, and he was gone. But he, he came that night. And he dressed in a spaceman suit outfit. He had a helmet on with a visor. He had the visor up, and he was letting people in for free through a side door. And Bill Graham just came rushing up, panicked, like, you know, how can you do that? And slams the door shut, and he looks and sees this guy, and he looks at him and says, Ken? And Kesey just plops his visor down and walks away. So that was the Trips Festival. It was a mess. They had the typical garbage pail filled with the Kool-Aid. It looks to be like somewhere around 900,000 people, something like that. Pretty good crowd, but not sold out and packed or anything. And definitely still like kind of under the radar. Only the people who would have been likely to attend anyway 
knew that this was taking place. It wasn't like they were writing about it in the Chronicle or sending TV crews to cover it. Chet Helms was the son of a um, preacher. And so he came to San Francisco with what I've always thought of as a missionary zeal. So instrumental in the flashpoint of starting everything. As a pot dealer, he would go around to all the hip boarding houses. The aggressive determination of hippies to start a new society has made its mark upon San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury. He ran across one on Page Street that had a ballroom in the basement and he started producing weekly jam sessions in that ballroom. And pretty much the entire San Francisco scene flittered through those jam scenes. Big Brother the Holding Company was founded there. They were kind of the house band. All the guys from Quicksilver played together for the first time at those jam sessions. The dead were there. And that was just the very beginning. That was like one of the very first laboratories where this germ could be worked on in a Petri dish. Now, Chester, attended all the early events. He was just an avid enthusiast, like I said, a missionary. And at some point, when the hippie commune that threw the first really three acid rock dances called themselves the Family Dog, decided not to do it anymore, Chester took over their name and found the Avalon Ballroom. This weekend at the Avalon Ballroom, Sutter and Van Ness in San Francisco, the Family Dog presents Big Brother and the Holding Company, the Sir Douglas Quintet, and the orchestra at the Avalon this weekend. And he'd thrown a couple of concerts in partnership with Bill Graham, but Bill was not a good partner, and pretty quickly Chester was on his own again. And that's when he opened the Avalon. The Avalon ran for two and a half years. It was the real hippie dance hall. Graham ran the Fillmore, in which Janis Joplin famously said was a place where sailors went to get laid. The Avalon was just a complete anarchistic mess and had wonderful shows, extraordinary lights, and everybody was on acid. Now, the Fillmore was great. There was plenty of great music there. There was plenty of great shows. There were plenty of people on acid. But that was definitely the establishment, and the Avalon was definitely the commune. This portion of the Grey Line in the city is the first and only foreign tour within the continental limits. Summer in San Francisco in 67 was a hell on earth. Flower children had turned into street people. It was overcrowded, it was crime-ridden, it was uh, filthy. The drug scene had gone from psychedelic to narcotic. The people in hate were fighting with the cops by July, I mean, lobbing firebombs at the police. I'm not saying the police were exactly that kind or generous toward the hippies, but hippies did not throw firebombs. Peace and love, remember? So the whole thing had completely degenerated. I mean, the music survived, and the fact is that the demand for the music grew so much out of that, the bands were no longer part of the neighborhood. They were being paid sums of money. Their economics were drawing them out of San Francisco. And really, a year before, it had been just a small scene in a few neighborhoods, and these bands had this very specific constituency, and now they'd become like an item of attraction. The Airplane, The Dead, Quicksilver, Big Brother, Country Joe... They started working elsewhere and being part of this growing movement.
The other bands took their places, you know, Santana, It's a Beautiful Day, Creedence Clearwater Revival. It's not that the San Francisco scene wasn't truly creative and abundant and everything as far as music goes, but socially, culturally, the hate was over. The Summer Love killed it by the time George Harrison, the Beatles, showed up in August and toured the flotsam and jetsam that lined the street. You know, he was so disgusted, he never took drugs again in his life. You know, I went to hate Ashbury, expecting it to be this brilliant place, but instead it turned out to be just a lot of bums. And many of them were just very young kids who'd come from all over America and dropped acid and gone to this mecca of LSD. So at that point, I stopped taking it, actually. That's where I really went for the meditation. You feel I have the hippie dead? It feels very groovy, man. Now we don't have any In October, the Diggers, who were sort of the community organizers around the hate, they held an agitprop ceremony called the Death of a Hippie, and they had a funeral march right down Hate Street. And on March 68, the Grateful Dead moved out of hate to the Marin County of Sonoma. Man, it was over. Not the music, you understand, not the culture. Culture was just dispersed, and it was, like, difficult to track the trace elements. Thanks again to Joel Selvin, the digital archives at San Francisco State University, and to all who created and documented the Sounds of the Acid Test, Trips Festival, and other music that filled the city of San Francisco in the late 60s. Your spirit lives on. As a brief side note to end on, the Avalon Ballroom, the scene to much of the counterculture we just heard about, went on to house a real-world cast of San Francisco in 2013. Think about that one for a minute. For the Echo Chamber, thank you for listening. Till next time, I'm your host, Brandy Howell.